Success alone will never satisfy your life. It's when you move from success to significance that life takes on meaning and satisfaction. This message is the first in the series, 10 Lessons for a Life of Significance. The message is entitled, Be Prepared. Here is Pastor Dale O'Shields. your Bibles, your sheet, teaching sheets, if you will, this morning as we start a new series of messages I'm really excited about. Actually, it'll be a 10-week series. It'll take us through the month of November. And I want us to stay together for this uh, series uh, as much as you can, be a part of this, because I really believe it's a potentially life-changing series for you. It's just more than just a teaching I'm providing you as a pastor, teaching the Bible. It's important to do, but it's really, I think, a heart of God for us during this particular season of our lives as a church and as people together. I want to talk to us about 10 lessons for a life of significance. 10 lessons for a life of significance. I want to start today by talking about preparation, the importance of preparation for significance. It's been said that life can be lived in three dimensions. Some folks live life on the basis of survival, just trying to sort of survive day by day and make it to the next day and get through life as best they can. And that's perhaps where some of us are today. Life can be lived at the level of success. I've moved beyond survival, and now I'm succeeding at some things. My life is sort of taking better form and better shape and have a little margin in my life, which is a good thing, and success is a good and wonderful thing in life, but it's not the highest form of life. The highest dimension of life is something called significance. Significance really has to do with how you are living your life in such a way that you're making a mark in a positive way on other people. And so you can actually not be successful from the world standards and still be significant. I've known lots of people in my life who didn't have a lot from a worldly successful standpoint. You could look at them and say, well, they're not really impressive people, but they knew God and they had a relationship with God and had an impact upon people around them. And so while it may have not looked like they were successful, they had something better than success. They had significance. And God's plan for your life and God's plan for for my life, for all of us together, is not that that we would simply live certainly in survival mode or not even in success mode. Again, nothing wrong with success, but to come to that place where our life really has true significance here and in the world to come, because this world is not all there is. When you begin to think about significance in Scripture, obviously the highest dimension of significance we could study is Jesus. There's no one more significant. He's made the mark on history. He is the Savior, the Son of God, the living Lord. He indeed is the focal point of all of Scripture. And so obviously we could study Jesus and understand something about significance from his life. But I want to take you to a, another character in the Bible, really a, if you will, a, uh, someone that in, in many ways, although not always, emulated the coming Messiah, and that was David, King David in the Old Testament. If you ask any Old Testament scholar what is one of the highest marks or the highest uh, uh, characters of the Old Testament, the most significant characters of the Old Testament, they would often refer to David because David was the king of Israel that extended the kingdom of Israel far beyond it had ever been extended before. But far beyond that, he was the king that gave us the book of Psalms, 150 Psalms of his relationship with God. And if you're like me, I have found comfort solace, strength many times by opening my Bible to about the middle section of my 66 books and finding one of those 150 Psalms, and it would be exactly what I needed for that moment in my life. How about you? Amen? Psalms like, the Lord is my shepherd. 
Psalms like, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Psalms that says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Psalms like this that were given to us by, by this man, David. And so for 10 weeks, we're going to take a look at David's life and the significance of David's life and both the, the good and the bad and the ugly because David was not perfect. He had a lot of things that were messed up in his life, but we can learn some valuable lessons even from his mess ups. And so again, for 10 weeks, we're going to look at his life and how it points us to a life of significance. Why? Because David was known as a man after God's own heart. I want to talk to you today about the principle of preparation. Because if you're going to have a significant life, and again, significant life is not about your success, it's about the mark you're making with your life on other people, the legacy you're leaving, the things that you're doing that has a positive impact upon the people around you for now and for eternity. And so to experience significance, you have to be prepared for it. It doesn't just happen in your life as a preparation process. And that's my first point out of three points today, and that's simply this, that a life of significance begins with proper preparation. To understand the life of David, we need a little bit of history. Let me give you a, a quick history story, history lesson, if you will, this morning about David's life. There was a time when the nation of Israel had no king. In fact, God was their king. He ruled over them as a theocracy. God was the king, the leader of Israel through his prophets and through his priests. And during that particular season, coming toward the end of that season, there was a prophet by the name of Samuel that arose. And the elders of Israel came to Samuel one day and said, hey, Samuel, we've been looking at all these other nations and all the nations around us, they have kings, but we don't have a king. We want a king like all the other nations. That grieved the heart of Samuel because Samuel realized that when they were asking for a human king, they were actually rejecting God as their king. And so he goes to God and God says, you go ahead and give them a king. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me that I would rule and reign over them. And so Samuel anoints the first king of Israel and his name was Saul. Saul reigned for 40 years. Just a quick bit of history about Saul. Saul started out very, very wonderfully. He was a great man in the initial state, days of his, his, his administration. But over a period of time, he became uh, filled with pride and arrogance, and he would not obey God's word to the T. He did not do everything that God asked him to do. And so eventually, after all these times of disobeying God, God said, you know what? I'm kind of done with you. You're not going to be king anymore. I'll let you continue on for a time, but my presence has been taken away from you. And Saul became a madman. He became basically insane. It's, it's, it really uh, is evidence in his relationship with David that we'll talk about more as we get into this series. And so God says to Samuel, now it's time for a new king. And so he says, Samuel, I want you to start, stop mourning over Saul because Samuel had been mourning over the loss of Saul as king and how Saul had lived his life. And so Samuel was in deep grief and God says, Samuel, I want you to stop mourning and I want you to start moving again. Sometimes in life, you have to stop your mourning and you have to start moving again. So God speaks to him. Notice these words that we're going to find in 1 Samuel chapter 16, the first three verses. Notice the stories that unfolds here. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. Then stop mourning and start moving. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Obviously, Saul was again a madman at this point in time. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse 
to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You're to anoint for me the one I indicate. I want you to notice that statement. I want you to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Listen to this from the NIV. Fill your horn with oil. This is the first verse. Be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. The New King James Version says, I provided myself a king. The message paraphrase says, I spotted the very king I want. It's interesting that Hebrew word that's used for, I have chosen, choose the one that I will indicate, I have provided, I have spotted. That phrase in the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament, actually speaks of something of this nature I've set my eyes on. I've been looking around, I've been examining, I've been observing, and it now is very clear to me the one that I've chosen to be king. See, God had been looking for the next king of Israel and somebody caught his attention. I'd like to be a person that catches God's attention. How about you? In the good way. So David had caught God's attention among the sons of Jesse. There was was a young man who'd been spotted by God because of who he was. God noticed David. And David now is going to move into a place of significance with his life because he was properly prepared. The reason that God noticed David was because David had been prepared for the moment. See, when God gets ready to use someone or bring you into a greater level of significance, he he doesn't look for powerful people. He doesn't look for successful people. He doesn't look for popular people because David was none of those things. David was not powerful. He was a little shepherd boy. We'll talk more about that in a moment. He was not successful. If you read David's resume, he had basically two things on his resume, son of Jesse and sheep keeper. Pretty short resume. And so he was not successful in that regard. He was not popular. No one really thought of him as being a great leader. He wasn't, as we'll see in a moment, he wasn't even invited to the party when, when, when there's this moment that Samuel is going to anoint the next king. And so he has none of those things going for him. But I will tell you this, even when you have nothing going for you from a worldly perspective, if you're prepared before God, good things can happen in your life. So David was prepared. He was ready. He was in the state of being ready. And while God continued to work on him through the years, because preparation is not just a one-time thing, it's something that happens throughout our life, David had, over the years, he had, unbeknownst to himself, prepared himself to become the next king. Can I ask you this morning, how prepared are you for a life of significance? Are you preparing yourself? Are you in a state of preparation? Or do you live in a state of preparation? It's been said that opportunity happens when preparation meets it. I think about my own life. I would much prefer, much prefer to be prepared for an opportunity that I never get than to have an opportunity I'm not prepared for. Do I need to say that again? I would much prefer to be prepared for an opportunity that never comes my way than to have an opportunity come my way that I'm not prepared for. See, God is the God of preparation. You begin to read of the major characters in the Bible, you will see that God will literally use years, decades, many times in preparing them. Moses was 80 years of age before he became the leader of the Israelites out of slavery, out of bondage. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus, the very son of God, spent 30 years in preparation for three years of ministry. We flip it. We spend three years in school and think we're ready for the, take on the whole world, right? Jesus spent 30 years in preparation for three years of ministry. Preparation is important to God. 
for us to experience prepared moments in our life and to experience the process of always being prepared and pursuing preparation. I'll explain more about that in a moment to you what that means, but my question to you this morning is, are you, do you live in a state of preparation? What is God preparing me for? What is he doing in my life that I'm aware of? Am I being prepared? The second thing that I'd like to share with you this morning that is about this, this road towards significance is to realize that God's prep work always begins with your heart. What did God see about David that impressed God? God said, I've been looking around and I spotted my next king. He's the guy that's prepared. I've been examining all of Israel looking for the one that's going to be the, the, the replacement for Saul. And I found him. I found him on a hillside in Bethlehem. I, I spotted him. This is the guy. What was it about David? What was it about this young man that caught God's attention? It wasn't his age because David was somewhere between 15 and 17 years of age when this moment happened in his life. Think about that. He's barely a teenager. He's 15, 16, 17 years of age when God begins to move in his life and call him to be king. It wasn't his achievements. We've talked about that. There's nothing going for David because what David was doing at that season of his life is that he was sitting on a hillside taking care of his father's sheep. Every day he would go out and sit alone on the hillsides of Bethlehem and this past summer, you saw us. We show us, showed a series of messages from Israel, and you saw those hillsides where, uh, where David would have been outside of Bethlehem. And he sat there alone, but he was doing something during those times. He was building his relationship with God. Notice now verses 4 through 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 16 as we continue this story. Everybody with me so far? You good? All right. So, so what, what's happened so far? God said, Samuel, go to the house of Jesse in Bethlehem because I found somebody there that's going to be the next king, right? Got it? Got it? Got it, got it. So here we go. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Because this was Samuel. I mean, he's the great prophet of Israel. So they were kind of afraid because Samuel's coming to their, their town. Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Let me stop for a moment. So you got the picture? Samuel goes to Bethlehem. He goes, he's going into this city now, and the elders of the city say, my goodness, here's Samuel, what are you doing here? Do you come in peace? Samuel says, yes, I've come to sacrifice. Come on and sacrifice with me. And so they get all the elements of the sacrifice, and they head toward Jesse's house. Jesse comes in, and he brings all of his sons, save one, with him. Notice what happens. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Eliab was the oldest son of Jesse. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So here's this moment. He looks out among Jesse's sons. Seven of them are there. And he says, there's that. But he looks so good. I think that's the king. It's got to be the king. I mean, he looks good. Looks like a king. He's the oldest. Obviously, God sent me here to anoint that guy to become the next king of Israel. Notice verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. Read the rest of that statement with me. But the Lord looks at the heart. That's a key phrase right there. Because it tells us something about David. It tells us something about ourselves. It tells us something about the kind of preparation that David had gone through. See, David had a prepared heart. 
Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. So now here goes the process, all the different sons. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep, Samuel said. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. You got the picture here? Everybody with me here? Yeah, very important, okay? So Samuel the prophet sends a word to Jesse, bring all of your sons to this very important meeting. All your kids need to be there. So So Jesse shows up to meet with Samuel And Jesse has eight sons, but he only brings seven. How would you like to be the son that was not invited to the party, okay? What does that tell you about Jesse's opinion of his his son? Oh, he's just the youngest. Certainly, you would never want him. All he ever does with his life is take care of my sheep. You want one of these seven, you certainly don't want him. But God had already made this statement, man does not look on the outward appearance. God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. He had seen something. And so he says, bring that last guy here. Bring that eighth son. I want, I want to see him. So he sent for him, verses, verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health, had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Everybody say, this is the one. Come on, say it like you mean it. This is, it was a declaration. This is the one. God said, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. After inspecting the seven sons of Jesse and discovering they were not the ones, they were not chosen. Why were they not chosen? Because they didn't have the heart that God was looking for. And now we see David coming on the scene. And David had the very thing that God wanted to see in a man who would be the next king. He had the right kind of heart. God, listen, God sent Samuel to the place where the young man with the right heart lived. There's a family, I've seen a young man who has a right heart. I'm gonna send you to the house where the young man with the right heart lives. Let me tell you this morning, if your heart is formed well, your life will go well. If your heart is not formed well, your life is never gonna go well. Everything in your life revolves around the condition of your heart. The deepest part of who you are as a person, what happens on the inside. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God pushes all that stuff aside. God is not impressed with your resume. You may have a fantastic resume. You may have an amazing set of accomplishments in your life, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with any of that. I encourage you to accomplish and do everything you can in a positive way with your life. Get the best education you can get. Do the best you can on your job. But none of that impresses God. I mean, think it. The God of the universe, you think your resume is going to impress him? This is the God of the universe, okay? So God is not impressed with the things that impress man, okay? God looks, he pushes all that stuff aside and says, I I know, I'm not interested in that. That's, that's good, but let me see what's going on in the heart. Let me see what's happening way down on the inside of that person because man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart, and David had a prepared heart. Look at, listen to Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, 
For everything you do flows from it. Matthew 5, 8, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Mark 7, 21 through 23, Jesus said, for it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 29, Jesus was, at, was asked the question, what's the most important commandment? The most important one answered Jesus is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Proverbs 21, 2, people may be right in their own eyes, but the Lord examines the heart. What is most important in your life to God? your heart. And if your heart's not prepared, you're not prepared. If your heart's not prepared, you're not prepared for significance. To, be, to have a life of significance, you have to have your heart properly prepared. And so the final point I want to talk to you about for the next few moments is this. When your heart is prepared, then your calling can be affirmed. This is the, the essence of my message, and I'll explain all these words to you in a moment. If your heart's prepared, which God is looking for, then your calling in life can be affirmed. If your heart's not prepared, you'll never find your calling, okay? Let's talk about calling for a moment. Anybody ever heard the phrase, that's a calling on that person's life? You ever heard that phrase before? A few of you have, okay. What does it mean to say, well, that person's called by God? The word calling, I think, gets confused at times in people's minds because we tend to think of it as something that only happens to really religious, spiritual people. Maybe they're called to be a pastor, called to be a missionary. We don't think generally as a sort of a regular Christian that that term applies to, to us. But I want you to know this morning that every person in this room today at all of our campuses, you are, there's a calling of God upon your life. And that calling means your purpose. And that purpose is not the same all the way through your life. It changes to some degree. Obviously, uh, when you're in various seasons of your life, your callings can be different. But what needs to happen in your life is you need to, you need to find your calling, find your purpose, and live within that purpose. Because when you die and stand before God one day, God is not going to ask you again about your resume. What he's going to ask you about is your calling. Did you do what I created you to do? that you fulfill the purpose that I put into your life. It's not about all the things you achieve. That's great. That's wonderful. Glad you did that. But I want to know, did you, God's saying, I want to know, did you do what I created you to do? Did you fulfill your calling? Not what you thought you wanted to do or you thought would be nice to do, but did you do what I set you on the planet to do? And callings are not just something we determine ourselves. They're callings that we find our way into as we walk with God. Other people affirm those callings in our life. It's not something that just happens independent of God, obviously, or independent of ourselves. We need to have our callings affirmed. And when your heart gets right, you can begin to step into your calling, okay? You can begin to walk into the calling that God has for you. But your heart has to be prepared. Now, how does God prepare your heart so you can fulfill your calling? There's one key word that I want you to note today that we'll build on for the rest of today's message as we get ready to conclude in a moment. How does God prepare your heart for the calling he wants you to walk in? And the one word is test. Everybody say test. How does God know what's in your heart? 
He puts your heart to the test. Okay. How does a teacher know if you know the material? They give you a test. The test is not to make you fail, contrary to popular student belief. The purpose of the test is to to give you as a student the opportunity to demonstrate that you know the material. Every teacher, every good teacher I've ever known are always happier when all their students pass than they are when their students fail. All the teachers said amen, right? You're not trying to, how many failures can I create in my classroom? No. You're trying to, how many how many students can I create? My, how many learners can I create in my classroom? And so when God puts you to the test, it's not so that he's trying to kind of wrench down on you and say, look at what a failure you are. He's trying to give you an opportunity to demonstrate a heart that he can pay attention to and say, yeah, that's, I, I can now move you into that calling I have for your life. So God tests various things in your heart. I'm going to talk to you about five things that God will test in your heart. These are certainly not all. This is not comprehensive. It is, but I think these are uh, critical, and I think they're at the heart of the test that God will give you. And because of that, I'm going to give you the word heart as an acronym that will help you to understand this. The first thing that God will always test in your heart is going to test your humility. He always tests your humility. I love this about David. David, David served well in the, in, in the back hills of Bethlehem he wasn't on a platform. He was serving behind the scenes. And for years, he had done this for his father, probably for a number of years, even though he's now only 15 to 17 years of age. It had, he had grown up serving his dad. He'd grown up serving the purpose of the family. He had no sense of pride or arrogance about him. And so he had, God had tested his humility. Humility is such an important thing to God that the, 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 the writer James, the Apostle James in James chapter 4 reminds us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so the first test that God will send along your life is the test of your humility. Do you have the ability to adjust your perspective of yourself and to work with others and to work behind the scenes? Do you have a servant attitude with your life? Can you serve without having a pat on your back and a certificate in your hand and a salute from the people around you? Can you serve with humility? Humility is so important. Jesus himself earned the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords because of his humility. Did you know that? Take a look with me at Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He, what did he do? Humbled himself. We're talking about Jesus here. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, that is because he humbled himself to the purpose of God, became a servant. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Instead of giving him the name because he walked in humility. Paul the Apostle reminds us of this and this important principle uh, aspect of our life, characteristic, Romans 12, 3, the Amplified Version, for by the grace of God given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of himself 
and of his importance and ability than he ought to think, but to think as to have sound judgment as God has apportioned to each a degree of faith and a purpose designed for service. First Peter 5, 6, would you read this together with me? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. I will tell you that when you go down, God knows how to bring you up. When you go up, God knows how to bring you down. Amen? So God tests your humility. Second of all, God tests your enthusiasm. Let me quickly make a distinction between enthusiasm and excitement. They're two different things. Excitement is when I get all emotional about something. I'm so thrilled about it. I just can't wait. This is wonderful. This is awesome. But excitement is very fleeting. It's very fickle. I can feel it one moment and then it it disappears the next moment. And so I'm not talking about excitement. I'm talking about enthusiasm. The actual word there goes back to the idea of entheos, in God. There's something that comes to us by an energy of God, enthusiasm that allows me to keep going for the long haul. I just don't give up because I know that God's doing something in and through my life. Even when I can't see it, I'm enthusiastic about the purpose of God. I'm just not going to quit. David had an enthusiastic heart. We see his enthusiasm in Psalm 40, verse 8. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. Jesus had enthusiasm for his ministry. Jesus said to them, my food, that's the very thing that satisfies me. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to completely finish his work. Enthusiasm is something Paul encouraged us to have. In Colossians 3, 23, the Passion Translation, put your heart and soul into every activity you do as though you're doing it for the Lord himself and not merely for others. Do you have enthusiasm? Do you have the kind of thing that keeps you going? Excited about, yeah, more than excitement, enthusiastic about what God has asked you to do with your life, even when it's behind the scenes and no one else can see it, but you know you're doing what God wants you to do. This past Friday night, we celebrated here at our church uh, our 20th anniversary uh, for the ministry called Celebrate Recovery. In 1999, we started the ministry Celebrate Recovery, and literally over these 20 years, we've seen scores of people Uh, hundreds of people actually come through celebrate recovery and find freedom for their life breaking free from hurts and habits and hang-ups and the reason that this has been such a consistent ministry in our church for these 20 years is because I found a man 20 years ago who was enthusiastic about his name was Craig Brown and Craig Brown, when I invited him to my office one Wednesday evening and said, Craig, I've got a burden for us to start Celebrate Recovery, and I believe you're the man to do this job. Would you be willing to step up and, and do this job and take on this role? He said yes, and he said yes for 20 years. Every week he shows up. Okay. Why? See, you can't, you can't pay people for that stuff. It's either in you or it's not, Okay. And it, and it happens down here, okay? It gets in you and says, I'm just not, I, I, I just, and I will tell you, Craig is as enthusiastic about Celebrate Recovery today as he, as he was 20 years ago. In fact, he looked at me Friday night, I spoke there Friday night, and he said, you know what, I can't wait for the next 20 years. I like a guy like that, right, okay? Enthusiastic. Caleb had it. Caleb, Caleb was 85 years of age, and he said, Give me that mountain. Moses promised me that mountain. I don't care if I'm 85. I'm still taking the mountain because I'm enthusiastic about the purpose of God in my life. 
I got to move on because I don't want to preach right here. For, I could preach a while right here, but I'm not going to. Okay. So God tests your man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. What does he test? He tests your humility. He tests your enthusiasm. Listen closely. He tests, he tests your attentiveness. I mean, it's important to pay attention to instructions. Would you agree? Instructions that are valid, important instructions given to you by someone in a place of authority, it's important to be attentive. And attentiveness is not just something you demonstrate by, yeah, I heard that. You actually do what you're asked to do. And the very thing that got Saul in trouble was he lacked attentiveness. He was always adjusting things the way he wanted. He would kind of do part of what God wanted him to do, but then he added his own flavor to it. How many you like to pull out your own flavor to what God wants you to do, right? Let me mix in a little bit of this. And God says, no, I didn't ask you to mix in a little bit of this. I asked you to do exactly what I told you to do, and I'm testing your attentiveness. And Saul failed the test of attentiveness, but David passed the test. Because when he was given an assignment, he was completely faithful to do it. And he, com he committed himself to that process on a consistent basis. Jesus himself was very attentive. Notice to what it says in John chapter 5, verse number 19. So Jesus answered them, I assure you and most solemnly say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself of his own accord unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father, whatever things the Father does, the Son in his turn also does in the same way. Would you agree that Jesus was fairly attentive to his father? Not fairly, completely. John 12, 49, I'm not making any of this up on my own. Any of these words Jesus says, up on my own. The father who sent me gave me, what's the next word? Orders. Told me what to say and how to say it. He taught us to have the same kind of an attitude Jesus did, the same kind of heart to be attentive to the smallest things in life. Luke 16, verse 10, he was faithful in very little. He is also faithful in much. He was dishonest in very little. He is also dishonest in much. Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful and trustworthy with all these magnificent, amazing things that I've given you. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful and trustworthy over a, over a, over a, little, and I will put you in charge of many things, share in the joy of your master. David had an, an attentive heart. His attention to the small things his father asked him to do prepared him for the big things God wanted him to do. When you're attentive to the small things you're asked to do, you're being prepared for the big things God will allow you to do. Little, always remember this, little is big with God. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. He tests the heart. He tests your humility. He tests your enthusiasm. He tests your attentiveness. He tests your reliability. Can I rely on that person? To be reliable means that you're consistent. You consistently do what you said you were going to do. You consistently perform in the way that you have committed yourself to perform. You're, you're at the top of your game in terms of commitment high-level commitment and faithfulness. Reliability is a very important thing, and it starts in the heart, in the heart, that you can always be counted on to do the right thing, to be faithful. It's an expression of your integrity, an expression of your fidelity, your sincerity, your faithfulness. 
One of the things that I always enjoy doing from time to time, we haven't done it in, in, in a few years, uh, uh, over the last few years, but I'm looking forward to doing it again, is going to Arlington National Cemetery. And when you go to Arlington National Cemetery, you're missing the, really the highlight of Arlington National Cemetery if you don't go and see the changing of the guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. It's an amazing thing to see where there's the remains of an unknown soldier and they have a brigade of those who've elitely been chosen to march back and forth to guard the tomb of the unknown soldier. They guard that tomb 24 hours a day, 365 days out of the year. If you go there at three o'clock in the morning, there is a soldier doing the same kind of march that you would see at 11 o'clock in the morning. You know why? Because of honor and integrity, fidelity. They don't sit down when nobody's not around. That guy is marching when it's snowing, marching when it's raining, marching when the hurricane force winds are coming through until he's told to stand down. He's there marching faithfully. God is looking for some soldiers like this. Amen? Men and women who would say, I am reliable. I am faithful. You can count on me. I will do what I said I'm going to do. Let me tell you something. You know how that happens? It happens when somebody has that in your heart. Okay, Reliability, faithfulness doesn't happen externally first. It happens internally first. Look at these scriptures that I think relate to this whole idea. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Proverbs 11, verse 3. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Proverbs 15, verse 19. Nothing seems to work right for the lazy man, but life seems smooth and easy when your heart is virtuous. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 2. Now it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 2. The things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. How reliable are you? God tests the reliability of your heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. And God says, I'm going to find out what's in your heart. I'm going to give you some tests. I'll test your humility. I'm going to test your enthusiasm. I'm going to test your attentiveness. I'm going to test your reliability. And I'm going to test your trust. Do you trust me? Will you throw your whole life over into my hands and let me guide you and let me be in charge of your life? Can I get in the driver's seat of your life? Would you trust me to drive your life instead of trusting yourself? Trust is really a reliance on a confidence in someone or something that is greater or more powerful than you are. It's letting go of the control of your life and giving control to God. The opposite of trust really is unbelief. Actually, I would say it this way. I believe the opposite of trust actually is fear. That when you don't trust, you, you live life trying to control everything. You live life under fear. And David, God saw that David had a trusting heart. He had a simple childlike faith in God. And it promised, it shows up time and time again in David's life, especially in the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 28, 7. We're just about done here. The Lord is my strength and shield. I trust him with all my heart. He helps me and my heart is filled with joy. I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. My last scripture for the day, our conclusion, 
It's found in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. The book of Proverbs was written, inspired certainly by the Holy Spirit, but God used primarily a man named Solomon to pen the words of the book of Proverbs. And Solomon was known as the wisest man who's ever lived. Okay. Solomon, does anyone know who Solomon was? Solomon was whose son? David's son, okay. So I have a theory, I can't prove it to you, although obviously God uniquely gave Solomon wisdom. I believe that some of Solomon's wisdom came from his daddy. Amen, Amen. okay. Right? Any good father is going to pass on some wisdom to your kids, right? So some of the stuff that we see in the book of Proverbs, again, I can't prove this. This is, this is Pastor Dale's speculation right now, okay? This is not theology, my speculation. But I got a feeling that maybe some of the stuff that found its way over into the book of the Proverbs might have been a little spillover from David in the book of Psalms. And in Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, Solomon, whether it was a spillover from his dad David or not, who knows? We don't know for sure. God knows. But he wrote these words that still are, are appropriate for us. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Submit to him and he will make your paths straight. God, trust, God tests the trusting of your heart. Do you trust him with your life? A life of significance always begins with preparation. God chose David because he was prepared. And the thing that impresses God is not your outward stuff, it's your inward stuff. How prepared is your heart? And to prepare your heart, God's gonna test you. He's gonna test your humility. He's gonna test your enthusiasm. He's going to test your attentiveness. He's going to test your reliability. He's going to test your trust. And when you do, our prayer together, and I hope you'll say amen to this, our prayer together is God help me to pass every test. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. We're grateful for the word of God. We're thankful for your truth to us. Lord, thank you that you love us, that you look beyond all the outward stuff. You look down in our hearts, Lord. You know our hearts and you examine them and you care deeply about us from the inside out. Lord, I pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you'd help each one of us to do the prep work in our heart, God, where we've allowed any kind of pride to come in. Lord, we ask you to just remove that. We want no pride in our life. Lord, we want to walk in a spirit of humility before you. God, where we've lost our enthusiasm for the purposes of God, we pray that you would rekindle enthusiasm. Lord, where we've lacked attentiveness to those things you've wanted us to attend to, the small things that you've asked us to do that we've kind of pushed aside. God, I pray today that we become far more attentive from the heart. I pray, God, for a spirit of reliability, that we will completely be the people of integrity that you've called us to be and help us to learn how to trust in you, God, with all of our hearts. Let our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name.